2: FM from Santa Clarita, California, Los Angeles County. So each week we have a show that we discuss with uh, business owners or startups or people that have actually can do something to help businesses or startups each week. And the show is Ask Brian and it's spelled with an E. And every week we go through a little bit of a shtick here of why we're spelling Brian with an E. Because we always said that, you know, when we were kids... Brian was spelled B R Y A N, B R I N. Why in the world did you pick B-R-I-A-N? Although I think it's a great branding concept because nobody does spell it with an E, except the you know name is O'Brien from you know the you know, maybe went to a pub, in Ireland or O'Briens out here. There's a lot of O'Briens, but uh, not not people spelling their name Brian with an E. So uh, I don't know. What are you now? An assistant engineer or a supervising engineer?
1: What is your role now, Patrick? I'm an engineer.
3: You're an executive engineer, come on, Uh, don't be so humble.
1: I am an executive engineer, yes. Is that why he just sits there and Emily does all the work?
3: Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's why we have Emily, so he could be the
2: executive, with an E.
1: Exactly. Executive with an E, and my protege, who also starts with an E, Emily.
2: And what exactly is your role here,
1: Patrick? (laughs) I'm supervising. (laughs) I thought you were a head doofus, but okay. Um... (laughs) <laughs> That's
2: not kind. <laughs> that is not kind. <laughs> well, the audience would like to know, especially our guest who hasn't listened to our show, may never listen to it again, but uh you'd like to know why we're spelling the name with an E, and what does the E signify?
1: So there's a number of words that are almost like a theme for the Ask Brian show that all start with an E. One of them happens to be uh, empathy, and he was not being very empathetic to... What does that word mean? ...when you... Uh, Put yourself in other people's shoes, not literally, figuratively.
2: So, if my foot's bigger than yours, how,
1: how would that work? I said figuratively, not literally. <laughs> I already covered that one.
3: Nobody wants to be in your stinky shoes anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I
2: agree with that. Nobody could fit in my shoes, especially with my head.
1: <laughs> I'm a size 13, personally. But, anyways, there is experience because everybody on the Aspirine Show is very experienced. Outside of that, we have experts. How many, how many years' experience does Emily have? Emily is uh, going on at least a good couple uh, couple months of experience. Well, you, just because you said everybody had so much experience, so well, you got to learn. You got to okay. learn somehow. Now,
3: do not start on Emily. That is so unfair. She's she, doing well, she, an excellent she
2: job. Can definitely, she, she can definitely give it. I've done that before, so no, no big deal there. She can definitely stand on her own. <laughs> <laughs>
3: But her executive engineer is training her in a really extraordinary way.
2: Yes, yeah, she yes. sits there and, watches and reads his iPhone all, all the time. Yeah, that's a lot of work.
3: Well, that's our fault because we're not keeping her interested.
2: <laughs> I'm talking about the executive engineer while the executive engineer is,
1: is uh, just sitting there. I right am now. currently writing articles, Sarah. Uh, so you're doing double work? Yep. And getting paid for more? He works
3: for a radio station. Of course he's doing double work.
1: Gotta be multifaceted.
2: How does he know how do we know it's for our, our station, not some secondary job or side hustle? Uh,
3: regardless, he probably still has three jobs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be multifaceted, folks. Well what are the other reasons? Anyways, other reasons there is experts because everybody that's on the Aspirin show is an expert in their field. Uh, how do you become an expert? You have to have at least ten thousand hours towards whatever you were uh, working towards.
2: And how do you calculate 10,000?
1: Okay, now you're giving me math. I don't know. I just know it's 10,000 hours. I don't know how many times... 40 hours a
3: week for five years.
1: There we go. Thank you. At least somebody listens. (laughs) Math is my worst subject. You're giving me math, eh? Yikes. Anyways, outside of that, we have... Well, he wasn't being empathetic. We have experience, experts. Uh, We have two of his favorites is excitement and... ENTHUSIASM! There we go. Uh, ouch. Yeah, ouch indeed. Tracy, did, did, am, I, am I missing some? Because I feel like I'm missing some.
3: You know, my favorite is always estrogen.
1: <laughs> well, that's indeed. not
2: part of our show, but he missed the biggest one, which we introduced a few weeks ago, and he just can't get Education.
1: Thank you.
3: Yes, of course, but yeah, I, I now might... that I have a female well, uh... cohort in the net, he's just fans.
1: Well, that has nothing to do with the show, but... The fact
2: of the matter is, is that our show tries to educate people, and that's why education really, really, really oh, should be the number one. and enlighten. What are we, a spiritual show, too?
3: I don't know. I are mean, we, sure we, we put about ahas and takeaways, and we, we enlighten people to the challenges and successes of entrepreneurship.
2: Sounds a little bit too far-stretched. Anyway, without any further ado.
1: A-D-I-E-U. And why do I like that word? Because every single letter minus the D is a vowel.
2: Wow. Poor Patty. He just sound so defeated. Well, and he has no enthusiasm and not excitement. And, None. And, like, and, I'm and starting I, to really means, worry about him. Well, that's because he's sitting on his phone playing, you know, the, uh, the next uh, Donkey Kong or whatever game he's playing. Yeah, I, I think
3: know. getting an assistant has really changed your level of enthusiasm, I have
2: to say. I think, I think it's a fact. Anyway, without any further ado, we have a great, great guest. His name is James Renzis. is that correct? That's correct. So a uh, couple of questions we have. The audience would like to know a little bit about your background. So currently you have a company called the RSH Group. Is that your company or are you just one of the, one of the people that work there or what's your role at that company? Currently?
0: No, that company, I started that company in 2002. I was the practice leader for Arthur Anderson before that and then before that for KBMG. So I worked for large, uh, you know, professional consulting companies before that. And then when Anderson... Basically, ceased to exist in two thousand two as a result of uh, Tax the Enron situation. Yeah, we call it E Day.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, that's <laughs> that's when I formed my own company and uh, started, uh, you know, doing this on our own. For uh, since then,
2: well, we're going to take that and uh, Patrick, you, did you listen to that E Day? So, in addition to the education, now we're going to have E Day. That's why people. <laughs> E-Day is very good. It was Enron, which is, uh, we won't get into that because if we did, we'd, we could have a whole three-show episode on uh, Enron and what went wrong. Anyway, so you worked for these two companies and as a consultant, was it, was it in the real estate area or was it some, some other area? Uh,
0: It was in uh, state and local tax and the, I was the, the practice leader for the, what's it called, the credits and incentives practice. So, we help companies negotiate incentives, and then take make sure that they take advantage of the uh, tax credits that are out there for expansion and you know doing business.
2: So well, I, I'm going to get into that a little bit further. But what what made you start RSH Group? And are there more than one person involved when you
0: started? No, RSH stands for Rich, Successful, and Handsome. That's me.
2: Me too. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> for both. That. <laughs>
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do work with other comp- another company that's based in uh, the Netherlands, and we do uh, work on an international basis. But on a domestic basis, I work as uh, the RSH group.
2: And so how did, you, how did you decide to start that? I mean, obviously you worked at other companies, and obviously you had, to, you know, you had an issue there because uh, Anderson was basically uh, you know, collapsing like, like our en- executive engineer just you know, out of it. So, what made you start this company?
0: Well, I you know my biggest client at the time was Lowe's Home Centers. You know, they were all over the place, and uh, they're based in North Carolina. And uh, I called them up and uh, had an offer to either go with another large accounting firm or uh, start my own company. And I said, I like doing business with you guys. I want to stay, keep doing business with you. I have an offer this other large company, I can go over there or I can start my own business, which you prefer to do. And they said, we'd rather have you start your own business because of Sarbanes-Oxley requirements. Uh, We don't want to have a lot of consultants, you know, that are also on our auditing. And this particular company was their audit as well. So it actually ended up working out great for me because I was able to, uh, you know, continue the business that I was doing with Arthur Anderson and uh, just took that, you know, and grew the company from there.
2: Well, that's a pretty, pretty big account to get. Now, at the time, how big was Lowe's? I mean, obviously, it wasn't as big as Home Depot, but it was, was it the second largest uh, uh, retail home construction business, or were there others? I mean, was home base around?
0: No, they were, they were uh, not as big as Depot, but, you know, very large. And, uh, and during that time, as you remember, Lowe's and Home Depot were both on a, a tear of expansion, so they were approving, you know, 10 new stores every, uh, every month. So, and each new store is probably twenty million dollars. So, you know, it's two hundred million stores every month.
2: That's a lot. You know, people don't know this, but I was an attorney for Homebase back in nineteen ninety-five in BJ's Wholesale. And sure, I don't know if you're aware of Homebase. Uh, you probably are. Homebase was very similar to a Home Depot concept uh, and a Lowe's concept. They're very similar. They ended up going out of business at some point, but it was it was pretty big, in, at least in the uh, Southern California. Or I don't know how big they were nationwide. So. What were you doing for Lowe's? You weren't doing the uh, the local and sales taxes issues. What what were you doing for them?
0: Okay, so when you establish a new retail facility um, in many places in the country, what you're doing is you're creating a huge sales tax impact on the community you're working with. And so if Lowe's might come into a location and create 100 million dollars worth of sales, that would generate in California you know, a million dollars of local sales tax that would go to the community. And and communities in uh, California are typically a little stretched when it comes to tax dollars because of uh, Prop 13, they don't get as much in property taxes, so they rely on sales taxes. So there's a tremendous competition between the uh, cities in uh, California and other states to get sales tax generating operations like a Lowe's or an auto dealership or a Costco or somebody like that. That's a huge prize for uh, communities in California. And uh, a lot of times they'll give you a percentage of that sales tax back to help offset the cost of building that facility So, or make a, make a deal work that normally wouldn't work. So, you know, that's what we're doing is the, we were going in and under each time they decided to look at a facility, we would go in and do an analysis, what types of credits and our incentives are available in that so that they take advantage of that before they make a, decision and purchase the property or do something that you want preclude them from taking advantage of that. So that would go to the CFO and the CFO would look at that along with what the cost of the real estate is, as well as the, what the market projection was in terms of how much sales they would be doing in that location. And that would all be boiled down to a, re, a return on investment and they would make a decision based on the highest level of return on investment, which stores got built. So they might be choosing from 30 potential projects. The ones with the highest ROI would be the ones that get funded. So it
2: could come down to, you know, two or three communities that all want the low store, and you're going to go with the the locality that you can get the best deal. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the one that's going to, you know, generate the most return on investment. So either it's a great market and they don't offer many incentives, or it's not such a great market and they need some incentives to boost it up. For example, I think I did one in – Bullhead City, Arizona. You know, it's like it's a small market. You know, it's not going to you know make it work. So they were they were good enough to offer some incentives to, off, to offset the cost of infrastructure to serve that building.
2: Well, and, and the community also. It's not just the sales tax part, right? Isn't it the fact that you're going to employ people there, and so you're employing? Oh people, yeah. You know, those stores have like a hundred people. You no.
0: Know? Yeah. Right. And all, but in uh, California right now, jobs. I mean, jobs are are good, but politicians mostly think about sales tax. They like the taxes. So, uh, you know, particularly because sales tax that are generated from sa- from uh, local sales is unrestricted sales. So they can use it any way they want. Whereas a lot of other s- taxes that they levy are already committed to other uses. So they can't play as much with that as they would from the, uh, uh sales tax generated from a, a Lowe's or another sh- retail facility like that.
2: Now the government, uh, can they, I don't want to use the word kickback, but can they give Lowe's, you know, hey, we'll give you a million dollars uh, or how does it work? I mean,
0: it, yeah, yeah, they can do that. They can do, a, they can do an agreement where this has done a lot in retail, especially large retail generators and also uh, e-fulfillment centers, uh, you know, um, we maybe an Amazon or someplace like that. Um, where you can basically you're concentrating all the sales tax from a broad area into a one location, and the tax, the way the tax is, it comes from the location it's sold at. So if it comes out of that location, the locality gets the sales tax, and they're free to do anything they want. So what they typically will do is either I've seen you know a number of ways they either put in the infrastructure that's public infrastructure that can help get that built, like a road or a sewer or something like that. To, help maybe put in a parking lot. In some cases, they'll lease, they'll purchase land and then lease it back to uh, the company at a favorable rate. And then finally, uh, you know, they'll actually send them a check every quarter based on how much sales they do. And it could go, I've seen uh, deals go as long as uh, 45, 50 years. And they would get checked for 45, 50 years and it'd be either 50 to 65% of the local sales tax generated. So if they do $100 million a year, you know, it's uh, $650,000 a year for maybe 50 years. Well, it
2: sounds like a pretty good deal to the locality, too. Um,
0: yeah, it's pretty amazing.
2: I mean, you know, in the old days, they used to have these, these towns, right, the company town, and they used to have everything in, the com- in, the, in that town. So it's kind of a, an offshoot of that, uh, as, and that's why I went to the job part. I mean, right now the economy is booming, but, I mean, you know, 2008 or something – uh, when we had, you know, the big crisis uh, to be able to build a Lowe's store where the unemployment rate is, you know, 15 percent or 10 percent, which it was back then, that could be a great thing for a community in addition to getting the sales tax money. so
0: Yeah, a lot of times the communities will put in stipulations for things that they want to see, maybe a, a standalone restaurant out in front of a Lowe's, uh, you know, as one community requested, uh, another community in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, Wanted us to put wanted Lowe's to put in a uh, affordable housing, you know, as part of the project. So you know they get they get some things that they want as well back that also helps with the community.
2: And do you are you negotiating with like the mayor, or are you or you typically negotiating with council people, or or just at the real estate boards or whatever or zoning?
0: Usually starts out with the economic development people and you describe um, you know what the potential project is, where the location is going to be, then. They'll typically take that to the city council and uh, then draw up an agreement with, you know, a real estate attorney that uh, outlines how that program would work, and then they vote on it. And um, you know, if they vote on it, it, it becomes uh, an agreement that the city will then sign, and then uh, you know, they then they manage it for the period of years that uh, the incentive is granted for.
2: So you know, how do you determine where's a good location? So let's say I wanted to open up a uh, a dry cleaner in. Uh... Anytown USA. It's a very popular town, by the way. Anytown USA. So I was just trying to figure out what the, it's kind of very close to a widget. I was just trying to figure out what would I want to do to determine where is the best place to locate a dry cleaner.
0: Well, the first thing you got to look at is who's your customer. What are you you know? What are you look, looking for in terms of your customer characteristics? Is it uh, you know? Is it a professional community that they're going to need a lot of dry cleaning, or are they all pilots? You know, where they need to have their uniforms done or, uh, you know, cops or firefighters or doctors, uh, you know, do they have the, is there the need for the product or the service that you're offering? And then there's a number of demographic sources that you can go to, to kind of outline where that shopping area is. And then the most important thing is finding a location that actually works for you within that general demographic area. And that really starts with, you know, real estate. You have to find a number of different locations that could potentially service your needs and then analyze each of those locations to determine what your ROI would be at one location versus the other. So you have to do a market study for each of those particular locations. You have to determine how much that's going to cost you to be in that location and then what the potential profitability of that location would be. And then you do a decision matrix where you lay out what's the most important factors that you need in each location and weight them in terms of how important they are to your particular needs. And that will give you a score of each location that you're looking at. And then you can start your negotiations on the top two or three finalists of that. Rather than laying out 40 different ones and trying to sort through them, there is a methodology that we use that's fairly standard across the industry. It helps uh, helps you determine from a scientific basis which what works best for you.
2: That was very informative. So, uh, how many? You said three or four finalists, but how many would you start with? Ten? You think is too much, or is that a good number? Or would you go?
0: Seven. Uh, yeah, the way we used to do it is we you could start out with literally our projects. We start out with maybe hundreds of potential locations, and then we use well you know, various types of screens. It must be X number of miles from, you know, a hospital. Okay. So, you know, the ones that don't meet that criteria, then we screen those out. And then the next criteria, it needs to be at least 5,000 square feet. And we screen out the ones that don't meet that criteria. It needs to, you know, have this type of parking situation or this kind of access then we screen those out. So you're going through a funneling process where you start with a large number of potential locations and you funnel it down using these screens to areas that make the most sense. And then you get to a list of 10, what we call semi-finalist locations. And then the semi-finalist locations, you do the market studies on, and uh, then you can score that and determine which of the top two or three that you should look at.
2: What's a typical time frame to do that? I mean, is that like a, a, a three-month process?
0: Normally, well, the projects we work on, we, we try and do uh, three months, although, you know, uh, things are moving pretty fast these days. So, you know, we're doing even one to two months now.
2: And uh, how do you determine the growth rates of, of communities? What are you using for that? Zoning?
0: Well, we look at, from a growth rate, we look at uh, population growth, obviously, and spending criteria, but they also look at whether the companies have moved into the area are they expanding? They're expanding. How many people will they be adding from a job perspective? So you're looking at what new companies are going to add to the income of the community. Also look at what companies have moved out and how much income you've lost. So we try and look at both sides of those to determine whether or not there's going to be you know, future growth potential for that community and if that growth potential actually fits in the kinds of products or service that you're trying to offer.
2: So what would happen if somebody says, hey, I want to move, I want to open up a location in, uh, in XYZville, and you go to XYZville and you go, you know, we had 80,000 people in 2010. Now, with the census, we're down to 40,000, and this is going to end up being a ghost town. So what do you do? You tell them, you know, uh, this is not a good idea, and let's go to a different city, or do you tell them, you know, what well, do you try to fit within the parameters of what they're trying to, trying to do?
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the similar situation right now in Tennessee, where it's a small town, and uh, you know they only added, I think, over the last ten years, 2,500 people to the whole county, and you know 50 percent of those would be in the labor force, roughly. So you're only looking at you know maybe 125 people per year being added to the you know growth rate of the, the economic growth rate of the community. So. It's, and in the meantime, there's you know a lot of other companies that move there that are looking to uh, you know tap that community as well. So you're in a situation where you know it's going to be I think tougher situation to compete over the next ten years than it, would, than it has been the last ten years. So in that case, we just have to look for a different location.
2: And, and basically, um, who's making the determination? Is it the the company? Like when you worked at Lowe's, right? Are they saying, hey, listen, we need to open up twenty more locations in LA County, and you just figure out the 20 best locations you can think of, or is it more along the lines, you know, we need to open up 20 locations You figure out, you know, if it's L.A. County or Orange County or Riverside or, or whatever?
0: Yeah. Usually what happens is the development community is constantly calling, you know, their real estate people and saying, hey, I've got this new project I'm trying to build here in Rialto. You know, here's the size of the parcel. Here's where it looks. Here's, here's where your site's going to be. Here's what the thing... And they constantly have a stream of real estate developers coming to them, proposing projects to them. So they have to basically sort through all those projects and determine which ones make the most sense for them. So that's how it enters the pipeline.
2: Okay. Tracy had some questions regarding the business part of it and how, you know, challenges of that nature. So Tracy, you ready? Yeah. So um,
3: one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, we were talking about, during the break is some of the grants that are available for businesses, and you are sharing some pretty amazing incentives. Could you want to talk through some of those so people who are listening may be able to take advantage?
0: Yeah, I just want your listeners to know, there's a, you know this is the first time ever that the state of California is offering actual grant money, cash money for companies that are uh, expanding or creating jobs, and uh, there's a new program called California Competes. In the past, it's been only a tax credit program. But this year, they're actually offering real cash. And uh, starting in January, on January 3rd through the 24th, they have 120 million dollars of cash that they're looking to give out to California companies that are expanding or investing. And the criteria are: you either have to you have to meet one of the criteria, either create 500 new full times in California, full time jobs in California, make a capital investment of at least 10 million dollars, or if you're going to have a, a project that's going to take in place in an area of high unemployment and or poverty, then uh, that is also eligible. And uh, this is a competitive program. About 20% of the applicants actually get approved, but the uh, application process is not very difficult. And uh, if you, your uh, listeners wanted to know more about it, I'd be happy to uh, get on the phone with them and outline what the process would be. How
2: can
3: people
0: reach now, that's
2: you? That's amazing. I, I, I'm sorry, Tracy, but I did want How can people reach you?
0: You can get me either on my phone number at 949-331-4330, or you can reach me via email at jrenzas at the rshgroup.com. That's rich, successful, and handsome group.com.
2: And that's me, just so everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, other than being rich, successful, and handsome, what were some of the other things that you attribute your success as an entrepreneur to in being a successful, um, I know know you started out great with securing Lowe's as your first client, but what are some of the things that you can say, because I did this, I am now a successful business owner?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. But, you know, I've always tried to be very market-facing, to have the the market, uh, because in the area I'm in, it's not one that you would normally, you know, think of uh, picking up the phone and asking somebody to do it. So it really has to do more with getting out there, you know, meeting with the various trade organizations that you think uh, make good prospects for you, telling what the benefits of your services are, and then also... Of course, always delivering the best uh, quality uh, product or service you possibly can. I'd say the majority of our um, new business comes from referrals of companies that we've already worked for or companies that have used us and then have friends that they refer to us. So once you get that referral network going, it's just a steady steady, uh, pipeline of work.
3: Did you create an organized referral program for your business, or was it just something that happened, like you were saying, friends and family? But I mean, to scale a business, the referrals are amazing. I was just curious, though, if you've implemented an actual, like, official referral program.
0: No, it just kind of grew organically. Uh, to start out with, uh, you know, some clients who were really happy with what we did, and uh, just basically they told their friends, and it, uh, and it spread from there. There's, a, uh, there's an organization of uh, CEOs that get together and uh, some of these, um, my poor former clients were members of that organization so they're talking with other CEOs and they all have similar problems so they all know where to go.
3: Do you implement any marketing strategies outside of a referral program? Do you leverage LinkedIn or do you, because you have a pretty niche target audience. I was just curious if you did any other outside marketing.
0: Yeah, we have a very big, uh, we have a very big LinkedIn group. I call it Site Selection Network. It's got over like 5,400, I think, members in that mem- in that network. So we have that. We do a regular series of webinars on various topics, and we have a mailing list that we send out to uh, prospects that um, dial in for that. And then also, uh, there's about 5,000 economic development organizations around the country, and uh, I work with them very closely um, so that they, uh, if they have a company that's looking around and needs some professional assistance, they'll often refer that back to me. So there's three main sources of business we get. We don't do a lot of advertising because when you're uh, doing site selection, it's something that occurs, you know, very infrequently, maybe once every five years, something like that. So, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense to actually do a lot of advertising, but keeping your face in front of them, talking to uh, business owners about things that you know are important to them and of course you know california business regulations business climate uh cost of doing business uh labor availability and of course incentives all those things you know uh, i think make people's uh, ears perk up so once they do that then we can come in and uh and tell them what our experiences are out there and and we're out in the marketplace all the time so we have a good, very good hands-on feel for what's going on uh, at any time
2: tracy you had a Enough question, and I had a question,
3: so you want to go? I do. So we talked about all the things that contributed to your success as an entrepreneur, but I'd really love to know what challenges that you faced in growing your business and how you overcame them. Two or three. One or two.
0: So there's three areas that we use to grow the business, and uh, the first one is during the 2008, particularly downturn when not much was going on, you know, in terms of corporate expansion, cost segregation was a fact uh, a service that we uh, added to our portfolio as a program that we're offering to clients, and cost segregation helps to accelerate depreciation on a federal basis. So, if you have, for example, a Starbucks with you know a uh, water line running to the bathroom, that's depreciated over thirty nine years. But if you ran that to the barista station, that would be depreciated over five years. So, not all of companies are depreciating properly, and you can go in and do that if you uh, file with the right right forms of the IRS you can accelerate depreciation and allow you to use your cash a lot faster than you would uh, normally that we've done probably a hundred million dollars worth of savings for clients in the l a basin on that, and that which helped a lot and then we added new markets we uh, affiliated with the international company to work on projects or foreign companies that are looking to invest in the U.S. And then finally, um, we have uh, additional markets that we're looking at to go into with regard to uh, local influencers, people that are looking for um, different attributes. Uh, they want to say they have a successful business in Los Angeles. They want to expand to the East Coast, help them you know, find that. And so we do work for economic development agencies as well to help them identify, you know, what they should be doing to become more attractive, those kind of companies. So there's, we've tried to bash out and uh, depreciate. I think that's, uh, you know, what you always need to do is uh, continue to grow.
3: Yeah. That's amazing. Those are amazing insights. And we definitely want to talk about how the pandemic has affected your business. Um, Brian, do you want to take that one?
2: So, yeah, I wanted to ask you that specific question twofold. One is how has COVID affected your client base? Because obviously, with many clients now having their employees work from home, you know, transferring a headquarters office, they may not need the same space that they did before, or maybe they do and they realize it's going to come back. Those type of issues, retail and everything. And then, uh, first answer to that question, I have one more follow up if we get time.
0: Yeah, COVID has basically affected everything, it's changed everything. Now, uh, you know, before COVID, people didn't have any trouble getting workforce. Now, a lot of workers who have you know, experience working from home no longer want to go back to the office or to the warehouse or whatever. I know that I was in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago and they told me that 70,000 casino workers are no longer going back to work. They're going to, you know, find a different careers. So it changes the whole outlook of what the labor force would be. When it comes to, you know, tech workforce, you know, there were always been quite a bit of, you know, work from home there, but now you can literally branch out and put people where they can afford to live. You know, one of the problems for Southern California is it's an expensive place to live. Not everybody can afford to live here, and some people want to move to less expensive places like Arizona or New Mexico or Salt Lake City or something like that. Now they can do that and still continue to contribute to companies that are based in California. So it's actually improved the labor force reach for companies but at the same time, it's added some challenges to getting those workers to come into an office or something like that if they need to have those people there.
3: Is it going to go back? Are people going to go back to the offices? What are the trends saying?
0: No, I don't think so. I think from what I, I'm hearing is like, uh not you're going to see uh, you know a portion of those workers come back, but they may not come back you know every day. They may come back two or three days a week and work from home the other days. It's always been for me interesting why companies didn't go remote uh, much earlier than they did as a result of COVID. But COVID forced them in this situation where they actually had to look at what the performance was of employees that are working from home. And they found out it was, you know, pretty good. So now people have more, com- more confidence that, you know, they can work from home. And of course, that saves companies a lot of money in real estate.
2: So we have about 50 seconds left. And the question is the effectiveness of people when they're not in the office. You know, in the old days, when I was working, we had a whole team. So we got someone from the marketing, legal, five different people, and we could solve a problem pretty quickly. Now you do it with Zoom, and it looks like Brady Bunch, and I'm just trying to figure out, does it work the same way, or is it, do you have to like be in somebody's face to get something done?
0: Different companies have different philosophies about that. I was talking with uh, some of the people over at Genentech, and you know, they feel like they like to get people together because they have the exchange of ideas, the inspiration, that all happens when they're all together, maybe having lunch together or, you know, uh, in a meeting together. So certain in certain areas, like tech areas, you know, they do like to get people together. On other areas I where, you know, you're just... I don't interrupt, we ran out of time. I
2: appreciate your time. Oh. We'll have you back. KHS 1229. <laughs> <Okay. 9/4> Thank 11. you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian radio show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.